0: This is the Kratom Science Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Gallagher, blog and social media writer for KratomScience.com, your source for all things Kratom. My guest is journalist Nick Wing, editor of TheAppeal.org. In his former job at Huffington Post, he revealed that the FDA's supposed kratom-caused deaths included, among other questionable findings, a man who was shot in the chest. His relentless questioning of the FDA's narrative proved to be the best journalistic work thus far on the topic of kratom. First, I was just going to ask you about um, The Appeal. You're an editor there.
1: Yep. The Appeal is a nonprofit uh, news outlet that really focuses on the criminal legal system and some other uh, s- systems across society in the U.S. that um, have really failed in doing what they, they claim to do. You know, I think the people think of the criminal legal system as, as something that, that provides justice and safety for people. But when you look at the the way it actually plays out um, across the U.S., it, it really, it just, it's incapable of doing that in so many ways. And it really creates a lot of harm and perpetuates a lot of the problems that I think the average American thinks that it um, is designed to address. So there are just so many ways in which we see laws enforced in sort of unfair, often racist or um just completely unjust ways that that target people based on their skin color or their circumstances or the amount of money they have. Um, mm-hmm. and we see this a lot in drug policy too. You know, it's people are drug policy is seen as, drugs themselves and drug use is seen as like a moral failing. Mm-hmm. And the way we address those issues is to to arrest people and to you know punish them pretty harshly for for using substances. And it's just, you know, a complete fallacy. That's not, you know, it's not the way to, to deal with the problem, even if you admit that it's a problem. And some people, I think, understandably think that drug use should be an issue of autonomy. And it's really not the purpose of the government to get involved in that at all. But, um, you know, certainly punishing people very harsh for those who do have legitimate problem and for, for issues where, drugs are you know cause public safety problems punishing people incredibly harshly throwing them in jail and really destroying their lives is not doesn't solve the underlying issue it just creates more trauma and makes people more likely to go on to you know commit future crimes and to be driven to drug use and stuff like that so yeah pretty much the appeal covers covers the system those systems as they exist and uh Advocates in some ways for for solutions that really get to the the core problems of a lot of uh, of a lot of the things we see in society.
0: Yeah, and that that sounds like something that uh, our listeners would be interested in reading. It's good to, that that we have journalism that actually does the job of journalism rather than the than the sensationalist clickbait, which I want to talk about with you a little bit more later. Um, and you actually did a story for HuffPost uh, talking about. People in states where Kratom was banned and, you know, what their lives were like. A couple people got arrested. Um, one lady got arrested, and she said, I'm lucky I have the money or my kids would have been taken away from me. Um, there's another guy got arrested, and he got some. He got thrown in the uh, drug tank with a guy who was uh, going through a mental health episode because he had been up for days on meth and he got beaten if kratom was illegal uh that would be the reality everywhere uh be just treated just like another drug um and and so you wrote that for huffington post so um so you went to college for journalism and you started uh pretty soon after you started at the huffington post how long were you there if it was about like uh nine or ten years
1: yeah pretty much almost ten years uh definitely oh, more than nine, but I was in my, I think about to be coming up on 10. Yeah.
0: And um, so what, hap- what happened with the Huffington Post? Uh, they got bought out by Verizon. Is that right? Yeah.
1: Well, uh, what happened to Huffington Post is is kind of what what's happening to a lot of media right now. It's, yeah. you know, it's being, these companies are being sort of passed around by bigger companies are being consolidated. And then company comes in and decides that it can't really justify the spending on staff because advertising revenues are, are falling off. So the entire model is, is sort of coming under scrutiny right now and it's leading to a lot of contraction in the market. And uh, so when I had been there, I mean, multiple times there'd been pretty massive layoffs where we lost large chunks of staff. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I was caught up in a, in a round of layoffs and there have since been a couple since I left. I mean, the, the remaining staff is pretty small, and the issues we cover are, you know, smaller and smaller set of issues. So um, it's not, you know, not just HuffPost. It's happening all over the country. I think what's pretty relevant, actually, to the Kratom debate is that, um, you know, local media is is really contracting in a similar way. A lot of newspapers are folding or selling to bigger conglomerates. And when it comes to drug reporting, I mean, it, it really needs to be looked at at the local level. There, there are the landscape around these policies, the landscape around the consumers, the landscape around the actual vendors. I mean, that's all tends to be a local issue. It looks different in different places. And when you don't have uh, reporting resources to really dig into to the, the different you know, aspects of the way that might look in a, in a community, there, people are, are left to do the low hanging fruit of news stories and around yeah. drugs. The low-hanging fruit are the drug scare stories. I mean, they're the ones that are headline, new drug, you know, kills this, this person who was a promising young man. And then you have the distraught mother who is dealing with a legitimate tragedy, who is trying to make sense of it. And the best way they can make sense of it is to blame it all on a substance that they felt was consuming their son or their daughter's life. And, you know, reporters who don't have the time to go do the actual reporting to look into whether that's true or not take that story at face value. And, and they write the sort of clickbait story. They write the sensational drug scare story and they run with it. Um, Mm -hmm. and I do think that in a world in which you had more resources and you had better, uh, more skilled, more seasoned reporters at the local level, uh, there would be more appetite to look into that sort of thing. And it wouldn't just be regurgitating the, the, narrative that they're getting from law enforcement or that they're getting from local anti-drug groups or that they're getting from, you know, the sober living community or things like that. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and just everybody in the kratom community that looks at this media gets really frustrated because there's there's you know some of the FDA stuffs being repeated. I mean that's one thing. I mean I can understand how somebody would look at the FDA and say, well, this is what they say. That's all. I have time to look into it. And I call it drug horror fiction because it it just goes back. I mean I grew up in the '80s with just say no and everything, and it goes all the way back to that. Um, I mean other than you and Uh, Peter Hess did some articles for Inverse. There's not a whole lot of deep diving in mainstream outlets for uh, the Kratom story. And is it just because most, you know, the journalists don't have the resources to to go into it and and do all the work that leads up to a good story?
1: I think, you know, for a lot of people who report on drugs, they don't necessarily come at it from... Um, the place that I did, which was to be really curious about how the sausage of drug policy gets made. Um, so that's a big, you know that's a big issue. I think they sort of follow the news as, uh, as worthy news in itself that this is happening, but they don't think about the motives for why things are happening, or they don't think about the, the, the reflexive tendencies in our society. Um, the sort of anti-drug tendencies that drive a lot of the policy debate. So I think a lot of reporters in this space are sort of more passive observers um, to, to that process, and they don't actually think about what's, what's happening. Um, some, some do, and I guess part of the problem is that there's so many conversations around different drugs happening in this country that kratom is you know fills a pretty small gap there when you talk about all of the developments that are happening around cannabis and, you know, Mm -hmm. other psychedelics right now, um, different drug therapies that are being approved. um, You know, there's Mm -hmm. legal, there's decriminalization of psilocybin and mushrooms and um, all that stuff is really fascinating. And I guess for the, you know, for the few people who are really covering all of that, Kratom is just a very small niche and they might feel either Um, like they don't really have the time to take it on or that, you know, there's even the possibility that they just feel that not enough people would read the story that they're writing. So they feel that the time would be better invested elsewhere.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and do you remember when you first started the report about Kratom? Was it, uh, in 2016?
1: I think so. Yeah. 2016. Mm -hmm. If I remember I did the first story, there was, uh, Right around the time, a couple state bills were, were starting to move. And I think there had been this may have been actually before the DEA had even caught in. But I saw a set of local news stories at the, at, you know, at sort of TV news and a couple newspapers around the country reporting on deaths. And then I saw that those deaths uh, reported death, I, I should clarify, were, were driving um, local legislation in an effort to really ban it at the state level. So um, that's when I caught on and, you know anytime a drug is being discussed for a potential prohibition I, I really think it's it's important to look at the the facts so much as there are actual facts that are going into that debate because we know from history that it's just it's just a, a minefield of, of misinformation
0: yeah yeah and I was gonna ask you more about that too um, but there was one report uh, you did that was pretty funny uh, you did a video with it um, it was the headline was I tried a soon to be banned herb in front of the white house. So when you did that story, had you ever tried kratom before?
1: No, that was the, that was the first time. And I remember, um, thinking shortly after that, I probably took more than the, uh, the introductory dose. (laughs) I think I took the same dose that the, the kind woman who offered me what she would normally take, but she had, serious chronic pain issues and I I sort of just downed it and then uh, (laughs)
0: yeah
1: yeah, it was it was was more actually more intense than I thought it would be it was not by any means scary but I was like oh this stuff this stuff actually works
0: (laughs) yeah yeah and I think that's the one thing I was uh, thinking about, a lot of the poison control center calls are just people that are scared because when you look at that data, it's mostly, oh, they have nausea or they feel uh, a little irritated or something or irritable. And they I think it was like people that were surprised that it worked.
1: Yeah. I mean, Kratom does sort of fall, you know, if you, you think of a supplement, right? I mean, like you go to head shops and there's all these different supplements and, mm-hmm. or you go to a supplement store. And, and a lot of them, I think uh, people are right to be skeptical about whether or not they work. You won't see immediate effects or it requires uh, you know, weeks of use or something like that. And Kratom is most definitely not that. You know, for, for anything that people say about it, it definitely has an effect and it has a pretty immediate and, and tangible effect. So um, mm-hmm. worth, worth acknowledging the reality.
0: But but nobody that was that at the um, it was a rally outside the White House uh, you're at but uh, nobody died from kratom that day I assume.
1: <laughs> not not that I'm aware of. Certainly that would <laughs> okay. have. Uh, that would have been a much bigger news story i'm sure
0: but if somebody got would have gotten hit by like the presidential limo or something and died it would have been a kratom related death um you looked at a lot of these uh so-called kratom related deaths and uh the one that you discovered from the fda's reporting um they redacted a lot of the information but it turned out uh the uh, there was a guy that died of a gunshot wound and the FDA included that in their uh, Kratom-related deaths. Um, We just looked at that uh, Jane Babin report and she actually quoted, uh, referenced your work in her report on uh, FDA fails to follow the science on Kratom. Um, Can you talk about how you discovered that and just talk about that case report a little bit?
1: Yeah, that entire batch of cases was based on uh, voluntary reports, I think to the FDA sort of adverse event reports, um, Mm -hmm. from, you know, people across the country, there was a set that was from loved ones of individuals who had died. There was a set from, I think, medical examiners, but, um, you know, all of that information tends to be, or those reports tend to be disaggregated and, and heavily redacted. So you can't learn any identifying information about who the individuals are. you know as a result the entire set was really unhelpful i mean it sort of gave you an idea of maybe the the race and age of the average kratom user but apart from that you really didn't get a whole ton of info and the you know that case in particular had been heavily redacted i think you know there are multiple pages but really only a couple words about um the individual's gender and their race and maybe their, their overall health. Uh, But in going through that database, there was a a case number that was actually consistent across multiple FDA databases. And uh, through the help of some sleuthing from some sources on Twitter, I think this actually came from Chris Redding. uh, He noticed that the, that case number, if you looked at another FDA database was not, redacted. Um, and in that other database, it showed up as a gunshot wound where someone had been admitted to a hospital and was deceased. And the toxicology tests showed that uh, mitragynine or kratom was among the a, a number of drugs, I think, that were in that person's system. So uh, it got lumped in as an associated death. Uh, and, you know, that's particularly absurd. But there were a lot of other cases that were just absurd. I mean, it seemed very clear that kratom had completely unknown, if any, weight on the person's death and people who fell out of windows, people who Mm. appeared to have overdosed on multiple opioids, things like that. And it's like, at that point, the presence of kratom doesn't really tell you a whole lot. Um, One thing I was thinking about recently, actually, that is a sort of parallel here, there was some reporting around deaths that I think anti-vax people tried to associate with the COVID vaccine. And they said, Mm -hmm. you know, a hundred people have died after getting the COVID vaccine. And, uh, you know, and that was trying, they were trying to play those off as, as associated deaths. But when you think about it, if, you know, tens of thousands of people are getting a COVID vaccine every day, people die, you know, and people die for lots of reasons. And if you just look at these two isolated um, similarities that are, are between them, it, they, they lose all meaning. I mean, if someone got hit by a car after getting the COVID vaccine, yeah, they died after getting the COVID vaccine. Did the COVID yeah. vaccine have anything to do with that death? No. So you see it play out. You know, People use the same tactics for their own sort of political ends, and you, and you see it playing out still now.
0: You quoted them. uh, I think it was like on a Twitter thread. I just have it here in my notes. But it said, using a new computational computational model, the agency feels confident in calling compounds found in kratom opioids. Um, Did you get the idea that they were just kind of like doing a database search of my and deaths and just? Throwing that, lumping that all in with uh, you know cr- kratom associated deaths—is that all they were doing, or were they? Was there any indication they were doing like further investigation on individual cases?
1: I, I think there was some language that suggested they were reaching out to you know confirm or to isolate various things. So, you know, I, I think that you're right though. I think they cast the broadest possible net they could. They wanted to define any death in which uh, mitragynine was present as a kratom-associated death, I suppose it's possible that they there were some even more obviously uh, not related cases in that set and that they excluded those. But based on what I've seen from you know future reports in which they expanded that number, it just seems like that's their definition. And um, they're looking for as many cases as they can to fill out that number.
0: Yeah, and there was the case, too, uh, that, that it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. It looked at uh, 15 supposedly cradle malone deaths in Colorado. Uh, researchers found 14 cases, multiple substances were involved, and the remaining, they couldn't do the uh, blood samples. And, and that kind of... Um gets me to like the medical examiner and coroner question uh there was a report uh that you posted at one point um from uh, henningfield babin and grunman who was a uh, who i interviewed for here but uh they said uh medical examiners and coroners are incorrectly reporting kratom involved deaths as kratom caused deaths um Can you speak a little bit about that? And have you seen these kinds of mistakes with, you know, like uh, other drug deaths um, uh, and like weighing too much on uh, the coroner's report? Um, And and Carl Hart's new book, the appendix shows what kind of qualifications you need per state. And for the example of Colorado, it was you just need to take some kind of like twelve-hour course or something, and you're elect. You can be elected coroner, which doesn't necessarily necessarily give you like a forensic toxicology degree um, can you speak a little bit about that about uh, the issue with uh, medical examiners and and their conclusions about these deaths
1: yeah I mean I think it, it, it's clear in looking at these cases that um, you know medical examiners are given a limited piece of information to work with right if they get a, if they have to do a tox screen they get a blood sample they run the screen and then they report what the screen shows. Um, and with that, they're often, you know, a medical examiners often asked to come up with um, an explanation for someone's death. And I think when you look at it, you know, the human body is pretty complicated. There are a number of ways people can die. And, um, if a substance appears in someone's body, it is it's become an easy explanation for a death. And I'm not saying necessarily that you know drugs don't kill a fair number of people because they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think when what we've seen in in these cases are that you know this is a new drug of concern, quote unquote, to to explain what how they're viewing it. So once that narrative starts to build that this is A drug that can kill people. Um, I think the presence of mitragynine in someone who has died is, you know, it's a sort of flag to to coroners and to medical examiners that this is a potential answer for a death that they couldn't otherwise explain. And that becomes super problematic because there's no, um, you know, they need to be a little less credulous about that narrative. They need to go do their own research and look into the science about whether and how this is killing people to confirm that it is before they're making that conclusion. But instead you have a bunch of people sort of following this narrative and it creates this feedback loop where, um, you know, Kratom equals bad equals deadly. And then that just feeds itself.
0: Yeah, and it seems in 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 the primary uh, research that that, that mitragynine alone, it's hard for scientists to kill rats with it. Put to put it that way. I mean, there might be so- something into like the drug drug interactions, but. Uh uh, mitragynine alone doesn't seem, and yeah, they don't have like the mechanism by which it causes death. Like we know, uh, like heroin, a heroin overdose might cause a respiratory depression, and that's how people die. But since uh, you know this kratom doesn't cause respiratory depression we really really don't know how it would kill you so it's i don't understand how they can even say this caused the death uh when there's just no science to back it up um i, I remember
1: speaking with uh a, prof- a metal, medical examiner a guy who actually did he was a professor down in uh, florida and he had taught some classes on this sort of stuff and i asked him, you know can this kill people and he said absolutely it can and I said, well, how is that happening? And he said, well, I can't explain that to you, but I've heard from medical examiners around the country that this is happening. And, you know, so this is a professional who's telling me it's happening, can't explain why it's happening, and his reason for why it's happening is that he's listening to other medical examiners who are telling him it's happening. Yeah. You know, if there's not a clear example of this being sort of groupthink around the, the harm, potential harms of this drug, then I don't really know <laughs> what else there could be. Yeah.
0: I mean, and as far as I can tell, it, it's kind of like you can get water intoxication, so if somebody, like, managed to, manages to put enough of the extract in their body, I mean, it's kind of like a water intoxication type thing where, sure, it can kill you, and if you drink enough water, it can kill you. There was just one new Kratom death report, still leave more questions than answers. Um, I was just going to ask, uh, it said HuffPost obtained uh, more than a dozen autopsy reports, do you have to uh, do a uh, Freedom of Information request uh, for each report that you get? It
1: it sort of varies. If I remember, is this the Florida data set that you're looking at? Yeah,
0: Florida and Michigan. Yeah, this so, is from 2018.
1: I think with Florida, I had seen some local reports that had cited specific counties that had reported these deaths, and um, I f- instead with those, you know, because they they weren't housed at a state agency, I had to FOIA the specific. County medical examiner. I think there's that's the way the system works down there, and they were pretty receptive in Florida. They I remember they fought it a little bit more in Michigan, um, but the states will vary on how permissive their sort of sunshine or freedom of information laws are. Um, but you usually I think have to go to the reporting agency, which in many cases will be the county um, agency, unless the state has decided that it wants to do a statewide report of this and then the state may have access to all of the county reports but when i when i did most of them um it was at the county level
0: there's this issue of like the fda keeps turning down uh you know requests requests like this about what they're basing their statements on um uh one point uh uh, the FDA has not revealed any further inf- information about the 36K. This is probably about 2017. Um, it denied HuffPost's request to immediately release the data and has responded to other reporters' requests saying they couldn't locate it. Uh, so there's there's all kinds of... <laughs> like, over and over again, it seems like they're trying to hide something or just not give the data. guess, like, why do you think they're doing that if they're so... I guess they're not so confident the uh, their argument holds water.
1: Yeah, I've, I've struggled to explain that. I think, you know, I really do think there is a belief at the FDA that kratom is dangerous. Um, I honestly do think that they believe that. Okay. Uh, now, <laughs> they haven't done the necessary scientific work to confirm that hypothesis, what they've done is is fabricate data sets that just follow what they've already agreed is their conclusion. Um, and why they would do that, I don't I don't really know. I mean, I think there could be legitimate fears that because the market is in such an unregulated state that this is it opens the door to potential problems, um, which is not entirely untrue. I mean, I, one mm-hmm. thing that talk about in this space all the time is that there is a need for um, more regulation more standardization of products and that in fact you know the the gray market and, and in many ways a black market it doesn't really help anybody except for maybe some unscrupulous vendors so yeah it's not that they it's not that i think they don't care at all about what they view as public health concerns it's just that um they've done a really poor job of, of being honest and open in their analysis of, of, of Kratom. And instead they, you know, they've decided upon a narrative and they, everything that they've done has been to reinforce that narrative rather than to actually check if it's true.
0: I mean, and I'll tell you like another thought that I've had about it. And I think even Jane Baven alluded to this in her, uh, report, uh, FDA fails to follow of science. Uh, the one she referenced your work in, um, Drug companies have been trying to develop a pain medication, especially especially lately, um, that doesn't have those side effects. And I know you uh, interviewed uh, Andrew Krugel, who uh, he, he did a one of the studies he did at Columbia. He found that Kratom doesn't recruit B-arrestin uh, after it hits the um, mu-opioid receptor, which the recruitment of B-arrestin is what causes uh the uh, respiratory and side effects and uh classical opioids so once they discover that that's what causes it discover kratom or mitragynine or 7-hydroxy doesn't do that uh with the side effects then that's kind of like their golden ticket for uh a pain reliever that drug companies have been trying to develop. Therefore, I mean, if you get somebody like Scott Gottlieb as head of the FDA who goes through the revolving doors now at Pfizer, uh, that maybe they're trying to control Kratom because if it's Schedule 1... Research will only be very limited to somebody that can access a DEA license to research it. So there's kind of like, do you think it's that calculated of a political move, or is it really just or is it really just only a sincere uh, uh, concern that kratom's dangerous?
1: you know, it's, I think it's impossible to really, to know for sure. I think that you're totally right. This, this conflict of interest, uh, can only raise that question that this is not being done in good faith. Um, you know, at the end of the day, it may not be any motivation in a single motivation entirely, right. It could be both. It could be that sure this, this drug could show promise. And at some point we're going to make billions of dollars off of it, but in its current form, you know, we have concerns about it. So we want to make sure people aren't using it now, but once we do our official FDA approved, you know, testing and trials that sure, maybe it'll be useful. Um, it just so happens that that's one way you can hold all of the money and profits around this. But I, you know, I think that the way the FDA works and that you know, people in this sort of drug approval space work is they, they tend to err on the side of caution and they tend to be very skeptical of any substance that hasn't gone through rigorous testing, um, you know, or clinical trials. So you have all of these different forces, um, coming together and some of them more nefarious and sort of conspiratorial than others, um, And at the end of the day, it's just like a perfect storm of, of, you know, motivations to keep people from using a substance that that that's working for them. Um, So I don't really know which one it is, or if it's any of those or all of those combined. Um, But, you know, it seems pretty clear that it's a, it's a powerful force uh, to, for people to try to keep this, keep this in a gray market and, or, or ban it entirely.
0: And I wanted to ask you about uh, the man who died in a car accident in uh, Chester County, PA. his uh, He's a young man. His parents sued a um, uh, Kratom company. Uh, from california because he had found kratom in his system and uh the official cause of death was acute my tragedy intoxication uh you were working on uh that story and you wanted to see the toxicology reports you went through pa's office of open records and um i guess just talk about what happened with that
1: yeah so i i mentioned earlier that some uh, counties were, were pretty forthcoming and willing to share mm-hmm. all the information they had about, you know, certain deaths and certain toxicology screens related to that death. Uh, Chester County was the complete opposite. I mean, they really, they fought it every step of the way. They wanted to offer no transparency about how they came to this conclusion. Um, and, you know, the, the, it's it's sort of this perfect case speaking to why it's important to have that information. I mean, you have a case with a really weird outcome, which is, according to the coroner, someone who overdosed acutely in a car, you know, really just sudden death in a car while they were driving and then had a pretty big accident. But somehow the accident didn't contribute to it at all and that it was just the overdose. But we didn't because we couldn't see the information. We didn't know how much um, kratom that this person may have taken or what product they may have taken. Or um, so we were really in the dark and we were left instead with a narrative that had been clearly publicized by the family. Um, Mm -hmm. And the family understandably is distraught. I mean, they've lost a young son. Mm -hmm. Uh, This, this guy I think had some mental health and maybe past substance abuse issues. Yeah. they, they were, you know, they were traumatized by this event and they were looking for someone to blame. And that happens in so many of these cases. And you can kind of see where people come from. Um, you know, the unfortunate reality though, is it's not usually as simple as we can blame it on this specific substance or this specific product. It's, you know, a confluence of factors that mm-hmm. are probably hard to accept if you're dealing with the tragic, an unexpected loss of a loved one. Mm-hmm. Um, so the narrative was controlled entirely by the family and by a friendly reporter in um, Pennsylvania who was um, speaking with the family. The family, I don't think was speaking with other reporters either. And they were sort of left to tell the story. Um, so just, you know, despite all the efforts to try to get some transparency so we could make sure that they were making valid claims, the, the office just refused to, to do it. And we were in the process of filing a lawsuit, which I'm pretty sure we were going to win. That might've had bigger implications for freedom of information, uh, requests in Pennsylvania. But that's right. When I left HuffPost and, you know, there aren't weren't multiple reporters at HuffPost who cared about Kratom, believe it or not. So, you know, uh, so when I left the, the lawsuit died and, uh, I, I'm not sure really what happened to it. I know that there had been some talk of that the the family's lawsuit against the the vendor proceeding. I you know I think vendors because they're selling a product that is not FDA approved, they carry a fair amount of risk and I could understand how a family who wanted to blame them would see a sort of easy target in terms of both, Um, getting financial compensation from the vendor, but also, you know, an easy way to sort of take that vendor down because they feel that the vendor had acted in a way that contributed to the death of their family member. Um, So yeah, I think all of that sort of, you see that playing out in a bunch of cases. I think you see family members of people who have died supposedly after taking Kratom suing vendors. And it's just a reality that I think in the current state of the industry, I mean, that's going to be a risk that vendors run, which is another reason why there should be, you know, some sort of standards and and regulations around it just to give basic protection, not only to consumers, but to vendors.
0: Yeah, really, because I, I remember looking at that, and um, I did a blog post about it. Their lawyer was, was saying, well, there was no uh, dosage claims on the package. And by the way, the package he was holding up was just plain leaf kratom. It wasn't in an extract. I mean, you know, for him to overdose, he probably would have had to take two kilos of it, but... Of but he, he was he was saying, you know, there's no there's no information on the package. And I'm like, well, for one thing, that's illegal. Uh, you can't make uh, dosage or medical claims. So my basic question was, why do you think why do you think the coroner the coroner didn't want to release the toxicology report?
1: You know, um, this is something that I think reporters come up against a lot. And I think. Coroners and medical examiners—they're—they're they're kind of in a law enforcement capacity. I mean, they work with police, they work with law enforcement. Their rulings have bearing on you know criminal legal system outcomes. They—they uh, they have a lot of power and they have a lot of weight to to control all sorts of things with their determinations and. Mm. I don't think they like the idea of having to be transparent. I think they want to maintain that power and they don't want to be second guessed. And when a reporter comes knocking saying that maybe they screwed up and that their screw up could have, you know, financial implications for people, but also have led a family member to believe something that is not correct,
0: they get mm. scared
1: and they don't want. They don't want to open the books, so I think, you know, just as much as this could have been a specific thing about this specific case, I'm willing to believe also that it was just an overarching principle of a medical examiner in this county in Pennsylvania who didn't want people to be able to snoop around and and check her work, um, and that has you know big implications for the trust that people have in medical examiners, but in their mind, the average person won't care and will continue to take their findings at face value. So um, it's better off that way, right?
0: <laughs> I guess uh, Mari Schaefer actually said that she saw the toxicology reports and this is on Twitter exchange you had with her on Twitter. And you said, uh, oh, I guess she got that from the family. And then she was like, they were correct. But you said, I, I can't assume they're correct because because there have been discrepancies because uh, manner and cause of death is is public info but uh, we don't know that the you know report was right
1: sure we don't know the yeah. report was right <laughs> I mean we you know I think people might be some people might be more willing to believe that the there's a possibility of that it was correct if they saw the concentration and of mitragynine in, in this young man's blood and it was, you know, through the roof. They might say, well, something weird happened here. We don't know what exactly, yeah. but okay, that much may have caused some sort of health interaction. Yeah. Uh, but but it, the way we're left with it, it's, you know, we've seen in other reports, 20 nanograms, you know, the, the equivalent of half of a cup of tea um, being listed as a cause of death. That just you know, so if that sort of thing showed up on the report, I think there would be a lot more cause for skepticism. But we just don't know.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and it sucks because if if it literally killed him, and you know he he had some kind of condition, I, I like I want to tell everybody on this show if you have this this and this, don't take kratom because. You know, this kid passed out and he got in a car accident. That's that's kind of the frustrating thing is like, I don't, you know, I don't want to, uh, just because I do a Kratom podcast, I don't want to, you know, tell everybody it's safe all the time, but I wish we could have the information. So, you know, if there's conditions where Kratom is unsafe, I can tell people, but we, there's just no evidence. Like with the toxicology, if it goes to trial, would then that report be, uh, become public?
1: Uh, unclear, I think, but you would imagine that if they're making the claim that, you know, Kratom, this product killed killed someone, that they would have to provide some documentation as to how they came to that claim. I don't know whether that means in court, you could just have the coroner stand up and say, I made the determination, um, accept me as an expert witness, or whether that person would also have to show the official documentation. I would hope that, you know, the company would um, seek that documentation just so they could look at whatever the coroner was looking at. But I, you know, I don't know the system, the system tends to give a lot of weight to um, so-called experts in this space. And you can kind of understand why, but I think when you, when you're not allowed to check their work or second guess them, um, it is problematic.
0: You know, I was just looking at a couple other things. Um, You did another FOIA request um, to the FDA about uh, toxic levels of uh, metals in Kratom, and they... uh I think they denied that there. There was. I mean, I had a uh, Walt Progelic on the show. He didn't. He went around Western Chicago suburbs, Buck Kratom and head so- sh- head shops, and he found that there were some levels of toxic metals in some of the products. Where if you take ten grams a day or more, which I would consider like a heavier user, then you you'd be you'd develop problems over time. So. Why do you think, like, they denied this request? Because there actually is some evidence to show that there is some uh, toxic metal problems in some products.
1: I really, you know, I really can't explain that, honestly. (laughs) uh, It follows a broader pattern of them not wanting to be fully transparent. You know, I think federal agencies, um, you know, even regulatory agencies don't – they don't want to make a habit of giving reporters – what they want to, to check their work. And I think, you know, yeah, it could have been uh, a concern that they hadn't done their due diligence and that a reporter who was looking at this with a more critical eye might've poked some holes in what they were looking at. I mean, there could have been legitimate privacy concerns where they didn't, you know, they didn't want to give information about specific vendors without knowing for sure whether the information was correct or, um, Really, I think hard to say, but but to your point, I think the lack of transparency both around this and around uh, the death reports. I mean, it it only can hurt the consumer if you if you identify with certainty products in a certain region or coming from a certain vendor that are dangerous. Then the consumer should know that, so that they can be educated about which products to steer clear from. If you know that a lot of people seem to be dying, you know, after taking Kratom and um, another drug. People should know that. We should know the trends, you know? If you see that that people are are with an underlying health condition are dying after taking X amount of Kratom and it's, you know, they're also noticing pulmonary embolisms, I'm just making that up. But like, if if you're spotting trends in the data, which you would presume if you had access to all the data you could do, then the consumers should know, so that they have a clear idea. But it's so it's so obvious that the the tendency away from transparency is actually making things more dangerous, um, which doesn't serve anybody, and it's just really disappointing.
0: Like before, you make millions of people criminals. Like do the due diligence to. Uh- check to see if you know your argument argument is sound i mean I, i'm looking at this uh, story you did on, on the ohio kratom band that said they said the most common way people ingest kratom is uh by through a needle uh through <laughs> which is insanely i don't think anybody's ever done that and if they did uh it probably hurt really bad
1: i mean i think uh, in that case in a, in a bunch of others i mean i think a really powerful underlying narrative that's, that's pushing this entire uh, momentum for a ban is the belief that people who are using Kratom and drug users in general, but especially people who have had opioid use or abuse issues is that they're like all, you know, drug seeking zombies in a way and that they're shooting stuff into their veins all the time. And that given, you know, a powerful enough drug, they'll always take it to the point of abuse and that they're gonna do all these horrible things. So I think any piece of information that that follows that picture of people using drugs um, is something that the people who are pushing for the ban will use to then you know, say we need to get this off the streets because we don't want you know, people who are like that abusing this and we don't want other people who aren't using it yet falling into those patterns. And it's just a really gross portrayal of uh, of people who use drugs and especially for, for Kratom, which, you know, so many people who are using Kratom have had experiences and in many cases, really bad experiences with other uh, traditional opioids, especially. So to, to say that people who are using Kratom to get away from drugs that actually were problematic and to say to Call those people all addicted or problematic users is, you know, offensive, obviously, to the people. But it's just a misrepresentation as well that just feeds this hysteria and this um, unfair depiction of of people who use these substances.
0: So in terms of uh, drugs, substances, a lot of other things, it's really about who controls the narrative more than about the actual science. I think that's why uh, journalism is so important, (laughs) Uh, like real journalism i'll i'll, I'll end with a uh a, a different question uh who, who are some of your uh favorite journalists past or present <laughs> um
1: wow you might want to uh, name past
0: because then you'll probably leave out some of your friends
1: <laughs> i mean i would say i i recently read the 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 book um by michael Pollan about you know, psychedelic drugs called "How to Change Your Mind," um, and I think just as an example of how one should go about covering drug use and substances, I think that's a really good example of someone who um, acknowledged their their biases coming into something and tried to account for them um, and to really probe them in a meaningful way. And also someone who is willing to, you know, try the substances themselves, themselves and to see what sort of validity, like what it was all about. And then also someone who's willing to speak in depth to, to experts, not just on the scientific side, but on the sort of cultural side, who could really give a nuanced, you know, robust three-dimensional portrait of all of the issues Um that surrounds something like, in this case, psychedelic drug use. But I mean, you just don't have a lot of reporters that are that are really willing to do that. I know that a lot of people have written books about the um, the opioid epidemic, and some of them have been better than others about trying to be careful about being human centric. You know, to like not demonize mm-hmm. individuals who have. Who have been using these drugs? Who, who have been addicted to these drugs? Um, but I think there is a tendency to to ignore the really like human factors that go into drug use, and to to let that be a really bad um, guiding principle throughout. And it you know if you if you don't have sympathy at all for the people who are using this or the reasons why they have started using it, you just feel less obligated to look deeply into the science. You feel less obligated to talk to experts because you get a black and white narrative and you've already decided what side you're on. And it, it's, you know, from there, everything follows. And that's just not how it should be.
0: Check out Nick Wing at TheAppeal.org, Twitter at Nick P. Wing. We have a link to his Kratom stories at Huffington Post. We need more real journalism like this, not only for the Kratom community, but for the country as a whole. The music is "Risey." The song is Memories of Thailand. Kratom Science Podcast is written and produced by me, Brian Gallagher, for KratomScience.com. Take care.